Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your week off. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can be together again tonight and um, that we can uh, not just come together to enjoy being with one another, though we certainly hope that happens, but uh, thank you that we get to come together because we get to hear your voice in your word. And so we pray that as we study your word, as we think about what it means and uh, how it intersects with our lives, that you would give us wisdom, uh, that you would instruct us, uh, that you would apply your word powerfully and specifically uh, to us, that we might become more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. So we are uh, we're on Micah five. We're sort of uh, coming into uh, the home stretch a little bit. We got four weeks in a row now, and then we're done uh, with the book of Micah. So we're right in the middle of Micah. We're at the end of the second uh, big section in the book. Hopefully this outline is starting to look familiar as we look at it every time we're together. It doesn't look brand new every time. We're in the second oracle, that second big prophetic speech, and we're at the end of the, this big section that talks about uh, salvation, about God's promises uh, that are going to uh, come true and uh, are going to result in the deliverance of his people. And uh, remember, the first oracle was there's a whole lot about judgment, and then this little glimpse of, of salvation in 2, 12, and 13. And now uh, chapters 4 and 5 are really a big expansion on what we, uh, what we saw in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So chapter 4, uh, the, we saw promises of future glory and uh, promises that are going to come true even in the midst of this present Distress, And if you remember, uh, the two sections from, from this, uh, this part here uh, each began with the word now, right? And so saying, all right, even though this is what's happening now, this is what's going to happen in the future, so verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, now, why do you cry out loudly? Chapter 4, verse 11, and now many nations have been assembled against you. Each of those sections, beginning with, here's the present condition, and then uh, moving into, here's what's going to happen in the future. Now, if you were listening, you may remember that I said the beginning of chapter 5 actually continues that pattern. At least one person was listening. They're nodding at me, saying, yes, I was listening. The rest of you, I don't know about. Uh, but the beginning of, of chapter 5 continues that section uh, with the word uh, now, verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. So in chapter 5, it had broken down into two, two big sections. Verses 1 to 6 uh, deal specifically with this future king who's coming. We, we saw a little bit about it in chapter 4. said the former dominion is going to come uh, to the, the people of Israel. That is, the, there's going to be another Davidic 
king um, and the Lord is going to reign among his people. Uh, we, that was picking up on uh, in, in chapter 2, the idea that there's going to be this king who's called the breaker, the one who breaks out, who leads the people like a shepherd, uh, and that that king is in fact the Lord. And we started to see this coming together of, it says the Lord's going to reign over his people, but he's also going to reign over his people through this shepherd king who is somehow distinct from him, but is also identified with him. And we said, now looking back from where we sit, we're like, well, yeah, that's Jesus. We know that. But Micah doesn't know that. And so we are, uh, we're, we're, if we're reading with Micah, we're just trying to kind of piece together what would he have understood? What is this teaching us about uh, what we ultimately know is going to end up being the person of the Lord Jesus? So the beginning, uh, verses 1 to 6, deal with uh, this promise of God reigning through this shepherd king who's coming. And then the second part uh, picks up on uh, how God is going to work uh, both through his people and in his people as a part of uh, this, this future promise of salvation. All right? So we'll start with the first section, God's uh, future reign through the shepherd king. Or picking up on what uh, we had been looking at last time, this section also begins with the word now. So this is referring to uh, Micah's contemporary situation or, or perhaps only slightly into the future with the situation uh, that's going to be happening at the time when the Babylonians come to conquer Jerusalem. So we talked about that a little bit last time. It says, now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this is kind of an odd phrase, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. It's, it's uh, like Micah is calling uh, Jerusalem to get ready to defend itself, right? So raise up your army. Um, the uh, this idea of daughter, uh, in some translations, this is just translated as city. Um, uh, oftentimes, uh, Jerusalem especially is, is called daughter, right? So da daughter of Zion or daughter Zion. Um, uh, one of the reasons it's the case is that in Hebrew, so you guys studied languages, you know that in other languages, not in English for some reason, but in other languages, um, words ha have gender, Right, they're masculine, feminine, or neuter. Right, some of you who speak un understand what I'm talking about. If, if not for yes, not for no. Okay, so so uh, the word city in Hebrew is feminine, which is one of the reasons why they'll uh, they'll refer to cities as daughters, sort of like we refer to ships as she, right, that kind of thing. So uh, calling Jerusalem uh, to defend herself, rally your your troops. Uh, for, why? They have laid siege against us. This they is uh, either the Assyrians or the Babylonians, uh, we would think. That, but, but an enemy army has come up against them. So Micah is saying, um, here's the present situation. You need to, to get your troops ready because there's a siege being laid against you. 
And then as a part of this siege, it says, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Um, that phrase makes me think that what he, uh, Micah is looking at is actually the siege that's laid by the Babylonians. <coughs> and this is why. Uh, if you look at uh, 1 Kings, no, 2 Kings 25, 1 to 7, uh, when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and captured it, they also captured uh, the, the king at the time. It was really a puppet king uh, that, that they had set up, but this guy Zedekiah, he was a real winner. Um, and what they did was, because Zedekiah had kind of betrayed them and was resisting them, they, they captured Zedekiah, who had tried to flee the city. They killed his sons in front of him, and then they put out his eyes, and then they dragged him in chains to Babylon. Uh, not a great way to go. So, but this, this idea of smiting the judge of Israel on the cheek may be a reference to this humiliation of, of the Israelite king, right? We talked uh, earlier about um, the, the kings being sort of the, the top judicial leaders in the country. They're the ones who ultimately were the ones who are supposed to decide between right and wrong, and so calling the, the king the judge of Israel would not be uh, uncommon. And so saying, okay, here's the present situation. Um, They've laid siege against us. They're going to smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. They're going to humiliate your king. It's a very different situation than what we see coming in the next several verses. So if verse 1 is the, is the present situation, right, the humiliation of Israel's leaders. In verses 2 through 4, promise a different future. The reign of, of a new uh, coming shepherd king. So this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem in verse 1. In verses 2 to 4, this is probably uh, if you know any verses from the book of Micah, these are probably the verses you know. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me, one to be a ruler in Israel. Oh, from you one will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Um, so well, I'll read the rest and then we'll, we'll go through it uh, verse 3 therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth so um, three Three things here. Uh, verse 2, where the shepherd king comes from. Verse 3, when the shepherd king is coming. Verse 4, what the shepherd king will do. So where he comes from, uh, when he's coming, and what he will do. All right? So first, where does he come from? Well, two, two places. It says, first of all, says uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Um, 
you know Ephrata, Pennsylvania? This is where my wife grew up. It's where we lived when we got married. This is why it's, this is Ephrata. Um, it's, uh, it's a district in Judea. Right? So it's Bethlehem of Ephrata, or Bethlehem in the district or the region of Ephrata. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's a little place. It's not a big deal. From you, one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. So from Bethlehem, one is going to come to be the ruler. If you are familiar with your Old Testament, there's another king who came from Bethlehem. Who's that? David. And so to, to, for Micah to promise there's going to be another king who's going to be ruler in Israel from Bethlehem is saying there's going to be somebody from, from David's line. There's going to be a new Davidic king who's going to come. So he's going to come from Bethlehem, but then it also says his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Well, this is uh, sort of a, a difficult um, phrase. So his goings forth, so we got to figure out what is, what is goings forth, and then what is, uh, what is meant by long ago and days of eternity, or, or other translations say ancient days. So goings forth, this is a really rare word in Hebrew. It's only used um, two times in, in the Hebrew Bible. And it's uh, really just, it's the, the plural of the word origins. Um, and so his origins are from long ago. Now, that could mean origin of his being, so where he and his existence comes from, or origin in the promise concerning him. So is it that he in his existence uh, is, uh, finds his origin long ago in the days of eternity, or is it that the promise about him finds its origin long ago in days? Yeah, so now certainly looking back from where we stand, we say, well, yeah, it's both. So uh, which one does, uh, does Micah mean? Well, uh, again, long ago and days of eternity are, are somewhat uh, difficult to translate. So, but if we, if we take this idea of goings forth as being his, his origin of existence or being, then it may refer to the fact that this king who's going to come from Bethlehem somehow uh, has existed from long ago, perhaps even into eternity. Trouble with the word uh, eternity is, in Hebrew, the word eternity can mean eternity the way that we think about it, like forever, back, never stopping, um, or it can just mean a long, long time ago. Um, and so we don't necessarily know if it's supposed to mean this is going to be a king from long ago, another David, or if it's if we're meant to see here that the king who's going to come from Bethlehem has actually existed forever. So now, we'd say theologically, we know this is fulfilled in Jesus, and we know Jesus has existed forever. The question is, is that what Micah is intending to teach? I would lean towards that, but it's not an absolute certainty. Um, if we take this idea of goings forth as being a reference to the origin of the promise concerning this king. So when did this promise originate? Uh, this, may, this, this phrase here, these, these phrases, 
may just refer to the fact that the promise about a king who is going to come, who's going to rule over God's people and who's going to establish peace and bring about uh, God's rule, that that promise is just ancient. Um, could be going back to the promises made to David. Could go back as far as the promises made in the garden about one who would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, or to uh, the promises made to Jacob that there's going to be one from the tribe of Judah who's going to reign. So, um, now, Micah doesn't tell us. Uh, so we can say, well, could, it could be these different things, but you start to get an idea of both, both the promise uh, and this, this ruler are said to be from long ago, certainly looking back from where we sit, knowing what we know, the New Testament teaches about Jesus, I think we're, we're well within our rights to say this is a, at least in, in, in a hidden, veiled kind of way, uh, telling us that this king who's going to come is more than just a man born in Bethlehem. He's that, but he's more than that. So, and if, uh, if you want to see uh, places where maybe um, Jesus himself kind of picks up on this idea that Micah has, has taught and talking, thinking about his eternity, uh, look at John 8.42 and 8.57 to 59. So, that's where he comes from. Bethlehem and eternity. Super simple. When the, shepherd uh, when the shepherd king is coming. So that's where he comes from. When is he coming? It says, therefore, he will, he will give them up until the time when she who is in, in labor has borne a child. And then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Clear, right? We don't even need to talk about this. Yeah, right. So, he will give them up. Well, who's he? I think he here is, is God, particularly in this idea of he will give them up. I think them uh, refers to the people of Israel. So, he, God, will give them, Israel, up. It's a reference to the exile, right? This is kind of the context that we're existing in, this coming exile for the people. He will give them up. But not forever, it's until the time. So there's a, there's a, there's a finite endpoint. Until the time when? When she who is in labor has born a child. Um, again, there's, there's disagreement over exactly what this means. There's disagreement over who, uh, who she is. Uh, there's disagreement over um, what this uh, this birth of a child or, um, means. So some people see the she is is being a, a connection to um, Jerusalem uh, or or to Israel. So it's talking about the people or the place. Um, maybe it's a reference to Bethlehem. And so just talking, another way of talking about a child who is coming out of the people of Israel, so he's going to be a Jew or he's coming from Bethlehem. Um, I don't necessarily see any reason why we, we wouldn't say that it refers to Mary, um, particularly because Isaiah's, or uh, Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, prophesies similar things 
in, in Isaiah uh, 7, 14, he talks about this virgin who's going to conceive, right? So, and uh, Matthew quotes both that verse and Micah to talk about the birth of Jesus. So I don't see any reason why we should think that it's, it's talking about anybody other than the, the, the woman who is going to give birth to this king who's coming from Bethlehem. But note that God is, uh, that this king that God has promised is going to come after God has given the people of Israel up. The people have hope this king is going to come, but it's not coming until after the exile. Um, in fact, this verse makes it seem like the exile is going to continue until the king comes. It's going to continue beyond when the people actually come back to the land. It's going to continue until this shepherd king arrives on the scene, right? He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. And that's, uh, that's the way the, the Jews themselves kind of understood the exile continuing past when they returned to the land because they're still slaves in the land. And it's only then, only after she who is in labor has born a child that the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. It's only then that this exile is going to come back, that God is going to regather his people. So when is he coming? Well, he's coming when he's coming. He's coming at the end of the exile, or the exile ends when he comes. So I didn't give him a specific time, but he says it's going to be after God has given you up for a time to punish their sins. And then uh, verse 4, what will the shepherd king do? A couple of things. He will arise and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord has gone. And this is very unlike the current kings that Israel's got. Most of Israel's kings are really terrible. Um, uh, they're not uh, leaders. They're, not, they're certainly not shepherds. In fact, uh, the prophets uh, uh, really rail against the kings for, though they're supposed to be shepherds, they feed themselves on the flock, right? You remember back to chapter 3, it talked about the, the leaders who are cannibalizing the people. Right? They're, they're like shepherds who are eating the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. This king is very different. He will shepherd the people. In fact, in, in uh, Ezekiel 34, you have Ezekiel saying, uh, kind of pronouncing these woes on the so-called shepherds of Israel uh, who are not doing their work of, of shepherding. And then he says, so I'm going to raise up another shepherd David, and he will shepherd my people. Now, that's after David's already died. So who's that talking about? That's talking about this son of David who is going to reign on David's throne. It's Jesus. So he's going to shepherd them. He's going to do it in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And then the condition is that they, are, uh, they will remain... Uh, or uh, maybe better, I think the ESV uh, kind of draws it out a little bit better. It says uh, they will dwell secure. This is uh, uh, not just talking about they're going to stay there, but they're going, to, they're going to be secure where they are. And they're going to be secure 
which is very unlike the situation at present where there's no peace or safety. They're going to be secure because at that time, he, the shepherd king, will be great to the ends of the earth. He's going to rule, and so the people who are his will be secure. That sounds like a pretty good situation. And then verses 5 and 6 talk about this future deliverance that's going to come through the shepherd king. Um, I think uh, the, the NAS is wrong when it puts a space between this one will be our peace and when the Assyrian invades our land. Do you have the NAS? Do you see that? See, there's a little separation. I think that's wrong. Um, and, and this is why. Because I think the structure of this is, uh, so if you have the, uh, the A line, and the B line, and the C line, and then this is kind of both the D line. Uh, and then you have, let me see if I can figure out how this works. All right, I'm just gonna. I'm not even gonna do this because I'm confusing myself. I'll. Sh All right, here, watch, watch. All right. So, this one will be our peace. So basically, what I'm what I'm going to show you is that I in the middle, it's sort of like a chiastic structure, but 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 not really. In the middle, you have uh, these these verses that all kind of go together, right? Uh, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod. So it's talking about these people, these shepherds that are going to raise up and what they're going to do. So those kind of go together. And then you have um, parallels. So this one uh, will be our peace. He will deliver us from the Assyrian. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he attacks our land, when he tramples our citadels, when he tramples our territory. Okay. Do you see that? See how those, those lines sort of parallel? So this is kind of its own thing in the middle. And then these have a, have a, both have a kind of A, B, C, A, B, C pattern. Right? So anyway. All of that is just free. That's just to show you, that's why I think the beginning of verse 5 actually belongs with this and not what goes, goes before it. So the, the, the main uh, point is that this future king, uh, this one, is going to uh, deliver his people from their enemies. And here, uh, the, the Assyrian, this is the, most of the commentaries I read uh, affirmed this, idea of the Assyrian is this is a, a, a reference to uh, kind of a general reference to all of God's enemies. It just happens to be the Assyrians are the ones who are at the time. And so if you want to say this is what God's enemies are like, you say it's the Assyrians because they're the ones who are there right now. Um, but it actually looks forward into the future and uses the, the, uh, the idea of the Assyrians or the term the Assyrians as a reference to, to uh, all of the enemies of God's people, sort of like how the the term Babylon is used in the New Testament to talk about the enemies of God's people, but it may not refer to the actual city of Babylon, which was 
long gone at the time. The main point is uh, God is going to enable his people and their leaders to try, uh, triumph over his enemies and their enemies. So uh, when, when God's people are threatened, uh, says, then we will raise against him, that is our, our enemies, seven shepherds, eight leaders of men. So this is the, uh, in Hebrew, you, all, you have this sometimes, there are six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. You're like, well, what's, did he, did he miss one the first time? And then he you know, scratched it out and said, no, six, no, seven. Uh, this is a way in Hebrew of saying a complete number, right? So seven shepherds, eight leaders of men, it, it's a way of saying uh, the full complement, as many as are necessary. We're going to raise against him as many leaders as necessary, and they are going to shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. They're going to, they're going to take care of their business, make sure the Lord's enemies uh, don't triumph over his people. And, and yet, looking into the future and seeing what this looks like, uh, God is going to use people to accomplish his purposes. He's going to use people to deliver his, uh, his people from their enemies. And yet, when they're doing that, it's it's not them, it's this one who's going to be our peace. It's he who's going to deliver us from the Assyrians. So verses 5 and 6, talking about this future deliverance that the, um, that the shepherd king is going to bring, looks at um, it's sort of as a, uh, a combined effort in a sense that uh, there's going to be people who are actually involved in this but it's not them who are doing it. It's, it's this king. It's the king who's going to deliver them from that. Now, you'll say, well, what is, what is this talking about? I did a lot of reading on this, and the short answer is, I have no idea. So, it, it, it could be talking about something happening uh, at the very end. could be talking about one of these final battles uh, at the time of the Lord's return. Um, uh, could be a reference if, we, if we're looking at this, maybe not as a reference to the Lord's return, but a reference to kind of his, his reign on earth during the age of the church. Um, could be a reference to the way that he is triumphing, o- uh, triumphing over his enemies uh, through the, the, the work of the church and the advance of the gospel um, so that it's, it's uh, people who are actually, who are doing this work, but it only, uh, only works because the Lord works in them uh, kind of thing. Uh, so... I'll let you guys uh, discuss what you think about that. But the big point there is that God is going to deliver his people. He's going to protect his people. His people are going to be involved, but it's going to be this king who is the one who's, who's making sure it happens, who's doing the work. And that provides a good transition between uh, verses uh, 1 to 6, which is the work of the, the shepherd king, and then verses 7 to 15, which deals much more specifically on what God is going to do in and through his people. So if verses 1 to 6 focus on, here's what the shepherd king is going to do, verses 7 to 15 focus on, okay, now what's God going to do in his people during this time of, of deliverance? So 
first verses uh, 7 to 9 are God's future work through his people. So God is going to work, and so this sort of parallels what we see in this section here, that God is going to work, but he's going to work through his people. Verse 7, Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. So part of God's future work through his people is that God's people are going to be a source of blessing to the nations. Right? It says the remnant of Jacob, so this, this remnant of God's people who are going to be gathered uh, together after the exile, God's calling his people back to himself, the remnant of Jacob, these, these faithful people who will worship the shepherd king. They're going to be among many peoples or many nations. And they're going to be uh, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation. Uh, like dew or rain, God's people are going to bring life and renewal and restoration and refreshment to the nations. Uh, Israel's finally going to do what it was designed to do, which was to bless the nations to lead people to worship God. So this may look back to the beginning of chapter 4, right? Chapter uh, 4, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about in, the, in this, this, these final days, looking in at what, what I think is the millennium, um, that the, the, there are nations who are going to come up to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. Uh, and so uh, the, the remnant of Jacob, this believing remnant of Jews, are going to be among the peoples, and they're going to be uh, there as the, as the nations come to worship the Lord Jesus. This doesn't require, as, as, uh, uh, even though um, the God's people are going to be involved, it doesn't require... Um, their will to make it happen, right? The, the dew and the rain, uh, they don't wait for men. They don't delay for the sons of men. It's something God's going to do. He's going to do it through his people, but he's going to do it. And then verses 8 and 9 continue. God's future work through his people. God's people are going to be a source of blessing to the nations, but God's people are also going to be a source of judgment to the nations. Right? The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations. So it begins the same way as verse 7. Among many peoples. But this time it's like a lion among the beasts of the forest. Like a lion. Like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. That's a little less encouraging than verse 7. The idea is uh, that uh, God's people don't, uh, aren't acting any appreciably different uh, in verses seven and uh, verse seven and verse eight, right? It begins the same way. The remnant of Jacob is going to be among the nations, doing the same thing in verse seven and verse eight. But there's two different results, right? To some, they bring refreshment, they bring life. To some, they bring death. They're like a lion in a flock of sheep. It's not going to go well. 
regardless of uh, who this passage is referring to, so if I, I view it looking forward at, uh, in uh, looking into the millennium with, with the, uh, the people of Israel, the remnant of Israel there, uh, or if it refers to the work of the church now, so God's people among the nations now spreading the gospel, it's a possibility as well. The, the principle is the same, that God's people act the same way, ought to act the same way among all people, but some will receive what they say and what they do in one way, and some will receive it in another way. So some will receive it like dew, like refreshing rain. Some will receive it as if they're a lion amid the flock, right? But that's not uh, because God's people are doing anything different. It's because of how these people are, are receiving the message. So you may have heard me quote this before. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who's a British pastor, has said numerous times when he's speaking about uh, something like this, says, the same fire that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same fire that melts the wax hardens the clay. It's the same thing, has two different effects. Paul says the very, something very similar in 2 Corinthians 2, right? He says, uh, we, speaking of uh, ministers of the gospel, we are a fragrance to some of life to life and to others of death to death, right? Same message, different responses. Some people hear our message and it, and it smells like life. Some people receive our message and it smells like death. Same message, different results. Going to be the same thing. God's saying, that's what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to work through my people. I'm always going to work through my people. People are going to receive it different ways. Verse 9 points us to the fact that despite the challenges of verse 8, right, that God's people are, are actually going to be a, a source of judgment to the nations, that God's purpose is ultimately going to succeed through his people. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries. And all your enemies will be cut off. Uh, God's judgment is going, to, is going to take place, at least in this sense it will take place through his people. Then verses 10 to 14, or 10 to 15, look at God's future work in his people. So not only is God going to work through his people, he's going to use them, but he's also going to change them. This is part of, part of this, this new condition that, that uh, the people living under the reign of the shepherd king are going to exist in. Right? God's going to win He's going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to bring people to worship him. He's also going to purify his people. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots, and I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. So what's God going to do in his people? First, he's going to purify his people from false trust. Uh, God says here in verses 10 and 11, he's going to remove 
the things that his people had a proneness to trust in instead of the Lord. Right? This is a, a, a common thing that seems to happen in Israel's history is they're constantly trusting in themselves to do uh, what, even if they're trying to accomplish God's purposes, they're trusting in themselves to do it. Right? So, um, we read, in that day, it will be in that day, in that day, this is this day of the, the reign of the shepherd king. I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. That seems kind of harsh. Horses are nice. Why are you going to cut off the horses? Right? I'll cut off the cities. Well, cities aren't all that bad. It can be good things happen in cities. I'll tear down your fortifications. The idea here are these are things that, that Israel would trust in instead of God. Right? Uh, so uh, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Right? God, God is constantly telling people, quit trusting in what you see. Quit trusting in what you can control and trust in me. Right? Um, remember the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, right? He starts out with a big army. God says, nope, there's too many. He makes them uh, keep cutting soldiers out of his army until he's got 300 guys left. He's like, yeah, that's perfect. Why? Because now you, you have to trust me. And that's exactly what happens. David gets, gets punished um, in, uh, uh, towards the end of, of his life because he takes a census in Israel. And we're like, what's the deal? Why is that a big deal? Taking a census doesn't seem that bad. He's taking a census to see how big his army could be. God's like, no, you're not trusting me. And so, at this time, God is going to remove the things that his people have a tendency to trust in instead of himself. And uh, just as a side note for us, it can be easy for us to trust in other things other than uh, God, right? Uh, particularly when we think about ministry, right? Well, what we really need is more programs or we just had the right curriculum or we just played this music or did this on Sunday morning or did this during the week or if we uh, said it this way or if we had the perfect evangelism presentation, so then we could really do really good ministry and all of those things maybe are, are things that we should consider kind of as a secondary feature of our ministry but our primary, primary feature of our ministry would be dependence on God. Right? Independence is a virtue in our society, but not to God. In our society, independence is strength and dependence is weakness. But before God, dependence is a virtue. Dependence is what God wants. So God says, in the end, I'm going to purify my people so that they don't trust in other things, that they trust me alone. In verses 12 to 14, God's people are going to be purified from false worship. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you'll have uh, fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images, your sacred pillars from among you, so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities. God's going to not only remove those things that the people are prone to trust in, but he's going to remove the things that the people are prone to worship instead of him. He's going to remove the idols. 
He's going to cut out all of this idolatry like the cancer that it is. He's going to purify his people so that they worship him and him alone. Um, as, I, as I look at verse 12, you'll have uh, fortune tellers no more. I'm just uh, thinking to myself, um, right around the corner from where I live and where Tom lives, there was a, uh, there was a psychic um, psychic, right? And it's like, and, for, and I don't think I ever saw anybody there. I wondered who stopped off the side of this little shack on New Falls Road to go in to see the psyche. It seemed ridiculous, but people must have gone there, or maybe not, because now they're closed. I don't know if that's because uh, Tom was praying for them to close, possible. Um, so, but in the future, that's not going to happen. Miss Cleo's not going to be on TV in the future, saying that she can talk to your dead relative, right? That's not happening. I'm cutting this stuff out. I'm cutting out all of this false worship. And notice, both in, in uh, verses 10 to 11, but also here, who's doing it? I will cut it off. I will cut it off. I will root it out. Right? If we were to look back in verses 10 and 11, I will cut off your horses. I will cut off the cities. I will tear down your fortifications. This is what God is going to do. God is going to purify his people we can't do it alone. We can't purify ourselves. God does it for us. It doesn't mean that we just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride, but it means that it's God who is going to ultimately do it. And if we think that we can uh, perfect ourselves before this happens, we're sorely mistaken. And then verse 15 is sort of like this little kind of odd verse sitting at the end, because it doesn't exactly relate to what he's been saying. It does talk about something that God is going to do in the future. Right? So it, it fits with the I wills. He says, and I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. This could be um, Micah uh, or, or God certainly through, through Micah saying uh, kind of bringing this this uh, this talk of future salvation, but in the midst of this present situation, reminding them that this is what's going to happen. And even though your present situation is one where you are surrounded by by enemies, you need to know that I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. I'm going to make sure justice is done. So that's the end of Micah. Five. This is a tough one. Like, like all of uh, these, these, these uh, prophetic speeches, we're having to, to figure out, well, what exactly is he talking about? When in the future is he talking about? Is it possible that there's sort of double fulfillment, that it's fulfilled in one sense right now and in another sense in the future when Jesus returns? So just a reminder that it's, we're, we're reading something um, that is, uh, while we are, are supposed to be able to understand it, it's clear enough that we can understand what it's teaching, that it's also got a lot that...